May I say that uh, we are studying the matter of discipleship, and uh, in particular, we are talking about the design of discipleship at this point, and um, we have turned uh, to the uh, fifth chapter of Matthew uh, on the, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this will be the last part of this section of our study. We will then go into the study of discipleship in the book of Acts. And then finally, in the final section, we'll be studying the subject of discipleship as uh, it's, it's presented in a practical framework for us, uh, not only in the epistles, but also as we uh, seek to actually show some of the things that you should teach and train uh, teach a new believer and train him in. And uh, so we'll be sharing some of those things with you, some of the very basic principles and techniques that Christians need to know in order to effectively live the Christian life. So all of that's ahead of us, but we want tonight to finish up with uh, this little aspect of discipleship, its design, and then spend a few moments, if we may, on just a sort of a conclusion on this subject uh, with drawing a few more thoughts from the Sermon on the Mount. Again, the Sermon on the Mount has to do with the rule when God reigns, the matter of Christ living in us and producing qualities of life in us that are correct and right. When we talk about the Beatitudes, we are talking about attitudes that we as Christians should have. And we suggested to you that just like the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes can be divided into two parts. Speaking of a vertical relationship, a relationship between man and God, and a horizontal relationship, a relationship between man and man. We suggested to you, first of all, uh, using the uh, Greek words and so on that are involved in this matter of the, uh, the first four principles, the verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, that really that amounts to anti-pride. Anti-pride. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their penury condition before God, that they are destitute, that they have no uh, nothing to commend them to God whatsoever. Verse 4 then says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we suggested to you that that has to do with hating Hating what keeps us from God. Thirdly, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Prates, meaning that attitude that simply recognizes that God's got everything under control. So meekness means that you don't have to react. No need to react. Fourthly, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You want to walk according to a divine standard. A divine standard. Now, in verses 7 through 10, we have the other side of the coin. We have this matter of uh, being of a relationship between men and men. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When you have an attitude in relationship to God that is anti-pride, you you're not a proud individual, you 
you recognize you're poor in spirit, that you're destitute before God, then of course you'll be a compassionate person with other people. You will be merciful. It's just a natural thing. Why in the world should you ever have any wrong kinds of attitudes toward individuals when you realize how poor and poverty-stricken you are? When you realize that apart from the grace of God, you are nothing and you have nothing, then what would you expect of them? Your expectations of them uh, would be just like your expectations of yourself. That is in me, in me, that is in my flesh, Paul said, dwells no good thing. Paul didn't have any trouble being merciful to others. He realized how poverty-stricken he was apart from the grace of God. He said, what I am, I am by the grace of God. It's always been fascinating to me when studying the life of the Apostle Paul. is the fact that, that Paul, in one place, makes it clear that he's the worst sinner that ever lived. The worst sinner that ever lived. I'm the chief of sinners, he says. That way no one ever need despair, thinking that they're too bad. But then in the book of Philippians, he turns the tables on us. And he tells us that he's the best guy that ever lived. That is, from the standpoint of ritual, that from the standpoint of good works. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, he was uh, a Pharisee as touching the righteousness of the law and all of these things. He was the best guy that ever lived. So that none of you th ever think that you are too good that you don't need a savior. Now Paul was able to look at both sides of the picture and realize that whether he saw it from the standpoint of his poverty spiritually as it really stands before God, his true condition before God, that he was absolutely poverty stricken, he was a chief of sinners. On the other hand, if it comes to the, by the standard of religion and works, he knew that he had attained everything that could be attained and yet he was still poverty stricken, he still needed God. He still needed Jesus Christ. The keeping of the law, all that he attempted to do, could never attain perfection. He recognized that. He knew that. And so he surrendered to God totally and completely on the Damascus Road and gave himself to the Lord and served the Lord and did it humbly and mercifully. And he could understand people like you and me. He could understand people better because he was anti-pride. And lest, after having abundance of revelation... According to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, after having that abundance of revelation, lest he should become proud, God just kept reminding him of how lowly he really was by giving him a thorn in the flesh. See? That helped Paul be all the more merciful. Now, when a person hates what keeps him from God, then he doesn't have any trouble being pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are simply those who hate sin. That's what it amounts to. And so purity with other people really is no problem to a person who has learned to hate sin. All right, and then, verse 9, when a person has learned meekness, so there's no need to react, then he becomes what with people? A peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And finally, when a person walks according to a righteous standard, well, then he picks up verse 10 without any problem at all. Persecution. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I always have gotten a kick out of that verse Paul wrote to Timothy when he said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That sounds kind of definite, doesn't it? When was the last time you suffered persecution? Persecution. 
You say, it's been a long time. Have you ever thought that maybe you're not living godly in Christ Jesus? It could well be that that's what's kept you from persecution. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? If you do, expect persecution. It's going to happen. Now, I tell you, we're living in a day where the, the, the picture's becoming a little clearer in a fuzzy world. There's a, there's a, a whole standard that has changed in the last five years to the place that uh, it's, uh, things are being accepted openly and blatantly today in polite society that a Christian can not biblically have any part in. And to take a stand on it, it's going to cost you something. Whether it be on the subject of abortion, or whether it be on the subject of homosexuality, or whether it be on the subject of, of general morality and all of the rest of it, listen, my friends, we are living in frightening days, and yet exciting days. The picture's a little clearer than it ever was before. Sin has been exposed for what it is, and yet the world is accepting it as normal. The Christian cannot if he hungers and thirsts after righteousness. We have to take God's standard first, last, and always. If we do, we can expect persecution. We can expect that there will be, the word will get out and that there will be those that will oppose us. I, I'm not going to be a bit surprised one Sunday morning if I find out that we're being picketed out here by somebody. That's become such a common thing. It just it won't surprise me at all. Don't be shocked. Don't be, uh, don't be upset by it. Just come marching through, holding your Bible high, and give them a quick smile as you pass by, and just keep right on coming. Invite them in if you want to. I don't care. But I'll tell you this, we will not lower our standard. We must not. Say, we dare not. And so therefore we'll preach the word of God the way the word of God is. And if they want to drag us out and throw us in jail, praise the Lord, let them do it. No problem. But we will not compromise our standard. The standard is the word of God, the living truth. It is the infallible indisputable, inspired Word of God. And God said it, and I don't have to argue with that at all. We can praise the Lord that He's provided us with such an objective standard in a world that is so rotten. I think that uh, if we remember a few years ago, we were studying from 1 Timothy. And we talked about the fact that in the latter days perilous times will come. Remember, the word perilous means difficult. Difficult days will come. Why? They're going to be men that love pleasure more than love. they love God. They're going to be truce breakers. They're going to be incontinent. They're going to have all of these various problems. We can find them all right now, right at our doorstep. And so let's stand for the truth. All right, so you will have persecution. Rejoice when that persecution comes because you're living according to a righteous standard. It goes on from there in verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, 
Say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Now, by the way, when we are talking about this matter of the two sides, the vertical and horizontal, there is an interesting application of this, and I wouldn't want you to think it's the only possible way to apply it. But there's an interesting application in the next couple of verses. For it says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if salt have lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It is therefore good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of man. And you think in terms of that verse, and you realize that we have in our horizontal relationship, or excuse me, our vertical relationship, we have a relationship that preserves in view of the fact that there is decay in the world. The preservation aspect of salt can be brought out here and it can be applied directly when it says, ye are salt. That salt can come as a result of having these four qualities that have to do with a vertical relationship. On the other hand, we have a relationship on the other side that penetrates in view of darkness in the world. On one hand, we have decay. And because there's decay in the world, there is the need for the standard of God in our vertical relationship. And because there is darkness, there is the need for us to have the standard of God in our horizontal relationship. For it says there, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. And so he illustrates the vertical relationship with salt. He illustrates the horizontal relationship with light. And we are to be both light and salt. If we're going to be the salt of the earth, then there has to be that intimacy of relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, so that is the design of discipleship. Now, in conclusion of this little section, and we want to conclude that tonight if we possibly can, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that next week uh, will be a special prayer time for the missionary conference. The following week will be missionary conference. And uh, so we want to uh, finish this section, and then we'll get started with a new section after the missionary conference. But uh, we want to say that in the Sermon on the Mount, there are a number of things, and remember again that Christ was teaching not the multitudes, but teaching his disciples. And all the way through the Gospels and the various passages, we've seen various aspects, various dimensions of this concept of discipleship. We have seen what the definition of discipleship is. Not the, the definition we hear so often, uh, but the definition, the biblical definition of what discipleship is. And we've talked about the demands of discipleship, and we've talked about the, the uh, dividends of discipleship, and so on and so forth. And so we've seen a lot concerning discipleship, and exhausted that subject pretty well in the four Gospels. But before we leave it, we want to talk a little more about this Sermon on the Mount, because this was the message that Christ gave to his disciples. And there are a number of things about this message that we want to bring out. First of all, the teaching 
of the, of the Sermon on the Mount was individual. It was individual. It did not present a blueprint for society. It is the charter of the kingdom under Christ's rule. But it did not primarily present a blueprint for society. Christ did not speak in the Sermon on the Mount as a statesman or as a politician. He simply made clear that when individuals are changed and begin to live their lives according to divine standard, then society can be changed as a result. We do not need to have a, a rule book, a, a, a setting down of, of do's and don'ts. What we need is to understand how God thinks. And when we understand how God thinks, then we will be able to think like God thinks. And so God recorded for us the verbal expression of his thought. And so we have the mind of Christ when we have the scripture. Socialism puts a new suit on the man. Christianity puts a new man in the suit. And there's quite a difference between the two. A man can wear a new suit and go straight to hell. But a man can have shabby clothes and be on his way to heaven. And in the long run, that's going to be the better bargain. He's not telling his disciples here, incidentally, that they are to change society. He's not telling them that they are to penetrate, as we've heard sometimes said, penetrate the governments and the schools and the courts with Christ's standard, trying to bring everything up to a standard. That's not the principle of what Christ is presenting here. We are not to go around telling people that uh, they ought to turn the other cheek, that that will make society better. They couldn't turn the other cheek if they tried. Simply, be, they might do it once, but it's like Stu Hamlin, you know. Well, Stu Hamlin, after he was a Christian, he didn't know his theology too well. And uh, he, said, he said that he knew that the Bible said, turn the other cheek. He said, so, he said, when a guy hits me, boy, I turn the other cheek. He hits me there, and he says, then I clean his clock, you know. And that's... Uh, he certainly doesn't understand the principle behind that. But you see, the idea is that we're not to be going around trying to superimpose this kind of a standard to make society better. Oh, no. no we can't do that. Because society wouldn't pay any attention anyway. It wouldn't do you any good. But you see, the emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount was the individual responsibility for each individual to be God's man and to be God's woman and to live God's way and to walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to allow Him to control our thoughts and our lives, to bring our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's the idea behind the whole thing. The emphasis on individual responsibility. The thing that Christians do things that Christians do so often is we tend to forge links rather than change lives. We make our ties. We, we like to have people join the church and we like to have people get into our organization. We like to have people get involved. and We, we have a tendency to, to build little links and little ties. You know, Christ never called all the things he called the church. He never called them links in a chain. You ever notice that? He called them a body. He called them his bride. He called them a building. He called them all kinds of things, but he never called them links in a chain. We don't just link up. We have a unity 
a oneness with Jesus Christ. And we are not to simply have ties in the world, but rather we are to be a testimony in the world. We are to see lives changed. That's one reason we don't emphasize uh, membership here at at Valley Church. We're not interested in getting a lot of people to join us. People that want to be a part of something. And they see something alive, and praise God we are, and they think, oh, I want to be a part of that. God doesn't want joiners. He wants people who will yield to Jesus Christ. Because when they yield to Jesus Christ, their lives will be changed. Now, the fact that we have an opportunity for membership really is no, no big deal one way or another. But the point is that to place the emphasis there would be wrong. And so therefore, we want to see lives transformed and changed. Money, education, politics will never benefit or better our nation. Never. I don't care what kind or breed or brand of all of these things you have. There was a day, you know, a hundred years ago, where most everybody that had any brains, except Christians who had biblical thinking, were saying that if only we could educate our people, then we would improve society. So we educated everybody. Now we've got most people running around with a college education and not brains enough to know what sin is. See, education will never raise the standard or level of society. Never. There's only one thing it'll do. And that is God's Word. And my friends, that is not education in the classical sense. Because the most educated person in the world, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, cannot understand this book. Or understand God's standard, or understand God's nature, or understand a million other things about God. He just can't grasp it. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. For they are spiritually discerned, spiritually appraised, spiritually understood. You cannot grasp the concepts of God with your finite minds. And I don't care how smart you are. So therefore, it is an individual application. Individual turning to God, repentance... Merimanano, the concept of changing your mind. Remember, repentance is not changing your life. You couldn't do that if you tried either. It's a matter of changing your mind. Allowing the transforming grace of God to change your mind. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. Fascinating word. It simply means that you demonstrate on the outside what is true of your inner nature. Let it out. Because if you're a believer in Christ, then you are to allow that new life in Christ to penetrate your thinking. Transformed by the renewing of your mind, what happens then? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. How about Proverbs 3, 5 and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. All your heart. Not 90% of it, 80% of it, 50% of it. All of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. The word heart there is talking about the soul of the individual. We talked in the class this morning 
about soul growth. And the concept of the Hebrew word lab, which has to do with the soul and has particularly to do with the thinking part of the soul. And soul growth is vital, absolutely vital. We must have soul growth. And so when we're talking about, about all of our heart, we are talking about all of our mind, emotion, will, conscience, self-consciousness, the whole thing. It is to be all surrendered to God, all right? And then it says this, just in case you missed out with that all, all-inclusive word. And lean not unto your own understanding. Don't you dare do what you think you ought to do. Don't you dare do that. Don't you ever lean unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. What happens? He'll direct your paths. And so therefore God wants us to recognize that, that individual change of mind, individual revival, if you please, individual renewal, individual regeneration will change our society. And what we have to be doing is be in our discipleship ministry is be seeking, first of all, to bring people to a place where they accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, as we've pointed out so very clearly. Can't do it on our own. It's simply a matter of cooperating with the Spirit in presenting the message, letting the Holy Spirit bring the person to Christ. All we can do is point him to Christ. The Holy Spirit will bring him to Christ. You don't bring anybody to Christ. I get tired of hearing this. So many people prayed to receive Jesus. I've got to be careful of that. It's not important how many people pray to receive Jesus. The important thing is how many have the Spirit of God drawn and they have responded by faith in Jesus Christ. It's possible for a person to pray to receive Jesus to get you off the telephone and not mean a word of it. And this only a, pers a person is only truly converted when he is converted by the work of the Holy Spirit within his heart as he yields by faith to Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. It's the only way of salvation. There's no other means, no other way. So don't be fooled by a lot of terminology and technique and a lot of other things. Be careful of that kind of thing. But get this, when we bring those individuals to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they need then to be taught. They need to be, it needs to be shared with them what the Word of God teaches concerning who they are, the things that happen to them at the point of salvation, the things that, that can be true of their lives as they allow the Holy Spirit to control them, those things that really are a divine standard in a corrupt world. They have to be presented to those individuals. If you don't faithfully disciple them biblically, then, of course, you're letting them down and leaving a babe out in the wilderness to wander and fend for himself. Constantine, you remember, when we start talking about this matter of society, Constantine made an attempt to wholesale, of a wholesale embracing of Christianity, saying that the whole nation really the whole nation must be a part of the church. When that happened, it not only corrupted the nation, it corrupted the church. The problem, of course, with the, the churches, uh, those central churches in uh, the book of Revelation, 
was, of course, that, that there was so much compromise you could hardly recognize them. Not so much that the church was in the world. That's true in every generation, true in every time. But when the world gets into the church, then you've got a problem. And so therefore, we have to be, as individuals, responsive to the message of the gospel. All right. Then secondly, his teaching was inclusive. There was no area of life that was excluded. Christ touched everything in the Sermon on the Mount. You ever notice that? He covered all the bases. He didn't miss a trick. There was no area of life that was excluded. He is our teacher, our didaskalos. He is the teacher not only, if you please, of religion, but he is the teacher of life itself. Aren't you fascinated by the fact that Christ, in this great Sermon on the Mount, did not merely talk about religion? Boy, did he ever get the cookies on the lower shelf. He talked about the nitty-gritty of life. He talked about the details of life. He talked about the things that, that are so much a part of daily living, things like what we eat and what we drink and all of those sort of things. Christ did not talk in an ethereal language way out here, a pie in the sky by and by where nobody could understand what he was talking about. He talked about very practical issues, how God could rule in the hearts and lives of individuals even today. He dealt with morals. He dealt with money. He dealt with the manners of believers. And uh, we must not, we dare not as Christians, consider any one area of life as secular and another as spiritual. The Christian life touches every area of our lives. We must keep that in mind. Just can't help but pop this up here for you. Christ should be the center of everything we do, whether it's our social life, our religious life, our occupation, our private life, our recreation, our relationships, our home, in any area of the life. We must allow Jesus Christ to penetrate those areas. Have you ever noticed how uh, when an individual, remember that the scripture says that we are not to be drunk with wine we're in success, but we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.18, or 5.18. We are to be filled with the Spirit. When an individual is, is uh, a drunkard, have you ever noticed, if you know some of those people, I'm sure some of you do, how the drinking affects all of the areas of his life? It penetrates every aspect of his life. No person can have the same kind of relationships in his home, sober, as he has drunk. Now, in some cases, uh, the way I hear it, uh, with those that uh, get drunk, they get drunk because of the relationships in the home, and they think it's better when they're drunk than afterward. But it does affect them, no question about that. No person who drinks will have the same kind of a social relationship with the people around about him when he's drunk as he does when he's sober. No person will have the same kind of religious relationships, whatever it may be, church relationships or, or even a personal relationship with God, if we include that under the heading of the religious. Same way with his occupation, his private life. Even his private life, you see, is, is drastically different. The way he thinks of himself when he's sober, is totally different than the way he thinks of himself in private when he's drunk. 
every area of his life is pervaded by being drunk or sober. And so every area of life is invaded by the filling of the Spirit, by the control of Jesus Christ in the life. It affects every aspect of your life. There is not one part of your life that should be left out. What makes you think that the filling of the Spirit is any less important in your private life than it is in your social life? It requires the filling of the Spirit to please God, whether you're alone or whether you're with a hundred people. The Holy Spirit must reproduce the life of Christ through us, or we have nothing to present to God except ashes. And we better learn that. So therefore, when you go to work tomorrow, you carry Christ with you. In a very real sense, Christ carries you to work. He must be in control. If he's not in control, then your work will not be as effective for God as it should be. And I don't care what you do. You may uh, be a plumber. You may be a carpenter. You may be an electronics genius. But you will not be as effective for eternity unless you will not be effective for eternity, period, if Christ doesn't control your life. You've had it. It's a waste of time. Don't bother going to work. All you'll do is make money. And that's going to rot and rust. won't do you a particle of good. So therefore, remember that it pervades every area of your life. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, and verses 24 through 34, we just want to draw this as an example to show how Christ penetrates the various aspects of life and how he deals with them. In chapter 6, verse 24, we read these words, following through to verse 34. No man can serve two masters, for either he'll love the one or hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was the god of money. And so therefore we're talking about money here. It says, therefore, I say unto you, be not anxious for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than food and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why are ye anxious for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And, I, and yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore be not anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, or the heathen seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Be therefore not anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is its own evil. Now, the word merimanano here, be not anxious, is the word that actually means to care. And there are legitimate cares and illegitimate cares, as we've seen in times past. But it's talking here about the anxious kind of care where you're worrying about things that really you have no control over. And he's, he's showing, really, first of all, by introduction in verse 24, that you cannot serve two masters. Either you are totally dependent upon God, resting on him, or you're seeking to make your own way and be a self-made man and then worship the Creator. 
That's the problem with a lot of people. They, they're self-made men, and they worship their Creator, and they forget all about the God who really made them, and the God who gives them breath and life and all the rest. But you can't play both ends against the middle. You can't have a mania for money and a mania for things and be seeking after things. You must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Those other things are things that God provides in His own time. And so again, that has to do with one small aspect of the Sermon on the Mount and one small aspect of life, but demonstrates how the ministry Christ gave to His disciples here was inclusive. All right? And then it's also a matter of it being intensive. It's intensive. It's all-consuming. Now, chapters, uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6, the whole concept of the pursuit of righteousness is an all-consuming thing. Chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 say, Ask, seek, knock, all of those good things. It's, a, it's an all-consuming thing. We don't just, we don't just uh, uh, hope for something in the future. We ask, and it shall be given unto us. We seek, and we have the promise that we'll find. We knock, and we keep on knocking, seeking, asking, incidentally, and it shall be opened unto us. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. God wants us to constantly be looking to Him for those things of, of life that are really vital and that are really important. There's an intensity to all that Jesus Christ says here, and we have to pick that up as well. And then <clears throat> it is also influential. Influential. The Sermon on the Mount touches on a number of very important areas of our relationship with the world. If we could just refer to the one that we've already mentioned, this idea of salt and this idea of light. Those are a couple of the many that are presented here. The idea of being the salt of the earth. And actually, the salt, of course, permeates the, the food that it comes in contact with. The light dispels the darkness. There ought to be, in a sense, um, almost a glow about the Christian, uh, that when you walk into a dark place, uh, that there is, there is the radiance of Jesus Christ evident. Um, and I, I don't mean that you're walking around <clears throat> with your list of 110 things a Christian doesn't do. Uh, I always, always resent uh, this, this kind, this concept and this idea of trying to, of trying to witness like this. A uh, person... Uh, offers you a cigarette and you say, no, I don't smoke, I'm not a, I, I'm, I don't smoke, I'm a Christian. That's the lousiest way to witness you possibly could. It probably doesn't have anything to do with it in a whole, in a, in a, in a, real, in a real way. Uh, there are a lot of people that don't smoke that aren't Christians. What, since when is that the equivalent? What you do is you can politely refuse, thank you, I don't smoke, period, that's it, okay? Then, later on, as you have opportunity, Open your heart to the guy as he begins to share his need and share with him how Jesus Christ can meet his need. That's the way to witness. That's the way to share with people. You're not trying to condemn them for what they're doing. Because I, I contend that it is no worse for a Christian to do a million and one, or for a non-Christian to do a million and one things 
Uh, it's no worse for him to do that than it is for him to do anything else. He's a sinner before God as far as God's concerned. He doesn't care how many bad habits he has or anything else. That's not what concerns God. He's a soul headed for hell. That's what concerns God. It has nothing to do with his habits. His habits just happen to trail along behind. And see, Christ wants to save the soul. Then he'll change the life. You want to change the life so you can get at the soul. And it's ridiculous. And Christ wants us to, to be so have such a fragrance of Jesus Christ in our life that people will ask concerning our faith. And then we'll be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh concerning that hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Pray tell, how does he know there's a hope within us? Well, he can tell, my friend, by the attitudes of your life. He sees the, he sees the pink slip come across the, the pay window along with your last paycheck saying you're done, you've had it. You lost your job. And he sees one guy going clear to the elbow. And he sees you saying, well, praise the Lord, he's got something for me. You may not use those words, but you, you simply relax and you, say, you smile and you're happy. And he saw, what's the difference? Hey, wait a minute, hold it. Something's wrong with this guy. He's either nuts or he's got something that I need. Why isn't he chewing his fingers to the bone? I think it's absolutely a sin for Christians to be pessimistic. Absolutely. How can we be pessimistic and believe in the sovereignty of God? I'd like to ask you. It's impossible. It's incredulous. There is no possible way that an intelligent thinking Christian can be negative about the things that are happening in our world. Because if you do, you are showing you do not believe in the sovereignty of God. Do you think God's panicked? No way. You want to live godly in Christ Jesus? All right. Then don't panic. That's one thing you know for sure God never do. Trust him. He's in control. He's never going to miss it. And so therefore we need to learn to have that kind of an influence in the world where it's a matter of us simply dispelling darkness by our very presence, by the conduct of our life, so that people will ask concerning the hope that is in us, with meekness and fear. And then further, there are num numerous ways that we are told that we are to conduct our faith. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, he talks to us about the simple subject of stewardship, the matter of stewardship. Uh, don't, uh, don't give your alms before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, uh, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound the trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thy alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. In other words, don't show off. That's the principle here. Let thine alms be in secret. The Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. We need to learn that. A matter of stewardship, private, uh, confidential type of stewardship. Chapters, uh, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15 talks about prayer. We don't have time to go into that in great detail, but let me just say that as he is emphasizing the secretness of the giving, the stewardship, he also emphasizes the fact that the effective prayer is secret prayer. I think the principle that you can constantly have in mind is prayers in public should be short, prayers in private should be long. It's crazy. You know, we have it the other way around. People, when they get before a bunch of people, they can pray up a storm. Oh, 
go on and on and on and all around the world, you see. But in private, they simply say, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray, pray the Lord my soul to keep, and so on. That's just about all they can muster up. Why? Well, they don't have anybody to show off to. You memorize all that beautiful verbiage in order to impress everybody how spiritual you are. When you're in private, you have only one person to impress, and that's God. Um, well, two people, God and you, and you already know how rotten you are, so you see it doesn't do any good to try and impress you. And so what do you do? You just, you just say, oh, I have trouble praying in private. Christ simply says, look, that's where the real action is. If we'd learn to pray more in private, we'd see more answers to prayer than you would ever believe. And so you're not to stand on the street corners and do your thing, but rather you are to pray. In, and by the way, you're to pray intelligently. This is a fascinating text. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 says, But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Now, the word vain repetition, that's an interesting word. Let me give it to you here. B-A-T-T-A-L-O-G-E-S. T-T-E. You see logos in here, actually alagos in here, and that of course is a word or a speech, intelligible speech. But bata means not a word, but a sound. Bata is a sound, all right? And uh, logeo is that which means to speak. What this word means is really to speak without thinking. When you speak without thinking in prayer, God says, don't do it. Now that means... You can, you can make all kinds of applications here. I've got to be careful. I'll get going on this. But you, you think of it. There are a lot. You think of how many pious little phrases, holy hiccups that you've learned. Things that you can rattle off without ever giving it a thought. You're never to pray like that. And that's how these people were praying. Vain repetitions. They were saying words. It wasn't even passing through the thinking process. They had just learned a habit. And they could say all of the fancy phrases and they could sound so pious and everybody was so impressed. Oh, wasn't that beautiful prayer? And yet they didn't think about what they were saying. I was studying in a psalm, Psalm 86 the other day. And you know, David was saying over and over again, Oh Lord, oh God, oh Lord, oh God. And you could hear the pain in that guy's voice as you read the psalm. Incidentally, he uses three different words in that psalm for, for God or for Lord. He uses the word God, which is, is, of course, Elohim. And then he uses the word Lord, which should is, is in caps in our English Bibles. And that, of course, is Yahweh. And then he uses the other word for Lord, which has to do with God. Uh, it's Adonai, which has to do with him being the master. And he uses all three of those words in different sequences. It's really a fascinating psalm. But, you know, I couldn't help but think that so often we leave the O out of our prayer. 
The, the, the awe of David there again and again and again is from the agony of his heart. This guy is really hurting. He is really pouring out his heart before God. It's so easy for us to say, oh, Lord Jesus, you know, and not really have the awe of a heart of agony before God. We don't know how to pray. I'm afraid, really, we have forgotten the art of prayer. We need to read the Psalms a little more so we learn how. Because we've forgotten. And he prays, O oh God. Speaking of Elohim, the God who's never lost a battle. The God who's sovereign. And the God who certainly can help him out in his problem. He comes to him in his desperation and need. O oh Lord, the God who's never broken a promise. Yahweh. Never broken a promise. A covenant-keeping God. And then Adonai. You're my master. I submit to you. And over and over again he says, Oh Lord, oh God, oh Lord. But David wasn't using vain repetition. He used words that were similar down through the psalm. But it was not vain repetition. Believe me, when you read the words, you realize it's passing through his mind. He's not just using words to be phrasing. Have you ever noticed that the psalms have tremendous variety in them? David was a thinking prayer. And so you don't want to allow vain repetitions. Incidentally, that verse also indicates that the idea of praying in tongues has to be wrong. People are claiming today to pray in tongues that they don't understand. That it's not passing through their thinking process. Christ said that's forbidden. You do not use words that do not pass through the thoughts. You don't just utter sounds. That's just something else to throw in that we won't get into anymore tonight. But that's just a very strong negative in regard to that idea of praying in tongues. Now, we are to pray then in private primarily, not rather, rather than praying in public and with a vain display and with vain repetitions and so on. And then, he, of course, gives us the pattern prayer for the disciples' prayer that which gives us the basic elements of prayer. We're never told that we are to repeat these words in prayer. Though it doesn't hurt to do them, I think many times that becomes a vain repetition. But it's the principles that are involved in this prayer that are so vitally important. And then, in verses 16 through 18, there's the subject of fasting. Fasting. And again, it says you're not to do that in public. It's not something you display. I think of fasting as just simply being able to buy a few more hours to study the Word. You skip meals, that's what you can do. It's not a matter of having a merit with God. There are benefits in fasting, probably physical benefits, undoubtedly benefits of time, but there is no merit in fasting. Christ says here, when you fast, assuming you probably will, um, on occasion, you know, you... Uh, uh, you skip a meal, uh, whether you like it or not, you know, just even if it's because you didn't have time to eat because of your job, you still fasted. But Christ says that the problem with these people were they were fasting and calling it spiritual. And there was nothing inherently spiritual about it. Everybody fasts now and then. In fact, you fast every night. Do you know that? That's why you have breakfast in the morning. So, big deal, you know. But you see, the principle of the thing is that there are times, you figure if you take an hour to eat every day, 
for each meal, or let's say half an hour and be a little more realistic, then that's an hour and a half that if you skip those meals, you'd be able to spend in the Word. That's the practical value of fasting. That's time that could be better spent on occasion. You have to eat now and then. Keep up your health. Of course, most of us wouldn't hurt us a bit if we missed quite a few meals. It's obvious we don't do a whole lot of fasting, isn't it, when we look like we do. The American people are, are really uh, in need of a lot of fasting, but uh, they're also in need of a lot of Bible study. And so maybe you could join the two. But Christ says, don't make a public show of it. He said, what the Pharisees were doing was ridiculous. They were fasting all day long and putting ashes over their face to make them look just like, oh, they were having a terrible time fasting. Then they'd feast all night. As long as it was in the day they fasted. They made it very clear. I fasted for ten days. The Jews had a day from six o'clock in the evening until, or six o'clock in the morning until six o'clock in the evening. That was their day. Anything after that was night, and that didn't count. So they'd feast all night and fast all day and think they were spiritual. And Christ said, I'm not the least bit impressed. There was no to be no parade of piety, no ostentatious display of works. This is always true of the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, then there's one more thing, and we finish it. The last, the fifth thing is, it's impossible. The things he said here are impossible. There is no way, no way you can keep this standard. You're going to flub it, you're going to foul it up, you're going to mess it up all the time. We have to have God working in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Because His good pleasure is recorded in this book. You think you can do it on your own? You're dead wrong. You'll never make it. There's no possible way. Listen to verse 20 of chapter 5. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says later on, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, my friends, we can't live up to that standard. As perfect as God? But I know somebody who can. Jesus Christ can, Jesus Christ did, and Jesus Christ is And you know what Jesus Christ desires to do? He desires to live that life through you. We have a union with Christ. And the life of discipleship is a life of faith. Get this, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, how do I live it? I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. There's only one possible way that you can keep the standard for discipleship, the design for discipleship that Christ has laid out in his word. And that is to allow him to have control and possession of your life. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We need desperately to learn the secret of allowing the Word of God to become so much a part of our life that we constantly are thinking like God thinks and yielding to Jesus Christ in our lives 
And that's why Christ said in Matthew chapter 7, in this Sermon on the Mount, summing it up, finishing up, he, he sewed it together in such a beautiful manner when he said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house. It fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. The only disciple that will truly be able to cut it with God is the disciple who builds upon a rock. He hears these words and he does them. But he doesn't do them in his own power. That's impossible. But he allows Jesus Christ, who is the author of the word, to live his life innocent through us to the glory of Almighty God. Just in, as a final word, in verses 28 and 29, the last, the sequence to the Sermon on the Mount was, came to pass when Jesus had ended these things that the people were astonished at his didaskalos. They were astonished at his doctrine. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Scribes had authority of office. Christ had authority of truth. And therefore, these words give us our conclusion to our study in the Gospels of the subject of discipleship. As we said, we'll be studying now discipleship as we find it in the book of Acts, giving us the, the biblical concept of discipleship as practiced in the early church.